Yes, one, two. This is a mic test. I am testing the mic. And see, this is what it's like to test the mic. So tell me when to stop when you don't need me to test it any further. Is it still needing to be tested? Thank you. Everybody say thank you, Drea. The, actually, while she was looking at the computer, um, actually, Okay, are we on? Are we good? Are we up? All right. Greetings. Uh, so welcome to another Wednesday night, study of Daniel. Let's open up in prayer and we'll, we'll dive right in. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening. Uh, we lift, um, lift this evening before you and I pray that you help me as we go through this study tonight to, uh, to share your word, to teach your word, to speak those things that are on your heart. Lord, as we dive in, may... It not simply be something that's knowledge for our minds, but food for our souls, uh, direction for our hearts, and um, Lord, that it would change our lives. May we realize we're looking into the mirror of your word, and may we not be the same after we've looked into it than we were before. Help us, Lord, tonight to enjoy your word together, and uh, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So... Let's see, do I've got, uh, I think if the, yeah, no, there we go. All right, so uh, we're, we are in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. And um, so as, as always, just up, right up front, the, my source is the, the work of Dr. Wendy Witter. Um, she's um, uh, immensely credentialed. You can see all her credentials on the screen there. Um, the, the, um, much of the material that I'm using came from a course on the book of Daniel in uh, Lagos Mobile Ed. Highly recommend Lagos Bible Software. I, I know I say that every week. I do not get paid by Lagos to say that. In fact, it's the other way around. I have spent a lot of money on Lagos Software. So <laughs> I have paid them for the privilege to tell you about them. <laughs> but uh, seriously, um, it's amazing. It's an amazing resource. Highly recommend it. Um, but again, I just it's about giving credit to the work of these scholars and what they've done. And so, you know, we, we are dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants and those that have gone before us. Um, so when you think of the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, what are most people kind of connected to? Yeah, prophecy, right? Some kind of key to end times, a key to Jesus coming back. Or like the cool stories in the beginning, right? You know, the cool, you know Sunday school, Bible, Bible school stories or, or prophecies and end times type of stuff. Okay, uh, 25 points for Joe right there. Um, so, um, but what our approach when we're approaching Scripture is first, here's, here's a simple way of putting it. Figure out what it meant so then you could figure out what it means. Figure out what it meant so then you can figure out what it means. 
In other words, when it was written, it had a meaning. It had an application. It had understanding. The author had an intention. The original ear, hearers knew what he was referring to and talking about. And when we can put ourselves in that place, in the, in the historical place, in the contextual place, and we know what it means, then we can find that universal application correctly and how it applies to our lives. So that's our goal. That's what we're doing as we go through this. And the overall theology of the book of Daniel, who can give me one of the three theological kind of, kind of capstones of Daniel? This, this, they're each worth uh, 37 points. Give me one of them. Ooh, tapping, tapping memories here. Something about God. <laughs> sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Right, there's 37 points. All right, now something about his people. Okay, so where are they? That, that is really close enough right there. 37 points. His continuing care for his people. That, the book's all about his continuing care for his people because they're in exile and they're not thinking he's caring for them, right? And so, and finally, we get a lot of theology through what? Story. 37 points. That's right. Theology through story. So there's, these are some of the main, um, 40% of the Bible is theology through story. And so the important thing is we pay attention to these stories. We're going to get into another story tonight. We're going to get into chapter 5. It's another story. When we read these stories, it's always important to pay attention what's in there as well as what's not in there. The, the author... Of, of scripture the authors of scripture particularly tell us certain details and don't bother with other details and we're going to see like okay why didn't they, they don't really tell us about this at all so it's not important even though the, there was a, a, a this but um uh but but they are telling us things that connect to other places in the scripture and what is important and when you pay attention you find all that and we're going to see some of this tonight so you got the israelites they are in exile shock they're outside the land the land's gone the kingdom's gone the temple's gone the line of david is gone what, does god still care this is one of the questions they've got evil kings ruling over them and that's going to happen even in the future it's prophesied where's god's plans and purpose in all of this I thought we were supposed to be prospering. I thought this. And, and so these are all questions that we face as we go through Daniel. These are all questions Daniel was written to address. And so the outline, the first half of the story uh, of, the, of the book is um, uh, our stories. The introduction to the king's food, Nebuchadnezzar's statue of a great idol, and then the building of that great isle with the fiery furnace. Now, then you get Nebuchadnezzar's tree dream. We spent a couple of weeks going after that. This week, we're going to talk about the handwriting on the wall. The handwriting on the wall. And then Daniel in the lion's den. The second half were visions and dreams that, uh, that Daniel has. Now, it's interesting. There's visions and dreams in the first half. And what, what's Daniel's relationship to the dreams in the first half? Yeah, he's the interpreter of them. Okay, that's right. 19 points for that. Uh, now, what's Daniel's relationship to the visions and dreams in the second half? Yeah, somebody else needs. He's looking for somebody else to interpret them for him. That's right. So that's another 19 points. All right. And so we'll, we're going to look at the four beasts, the ram and the goat, the prayer in the 70 weeks, and the kings of the north and the south. Now, 
Um, I'm going to throw up here. No, that's the wrong way of putting it. I'm going to put up on the screen. I'm going to throw up on the screen. That's, that's like really didn't mean it that way. <laughs> I am going I am going to put on the screen a, a division of the book that was done by Dr. John Lennox. I had the opportunity to sit under him teaching through this. Um, Mabel reminded me of some of his teachings. She sent me some videos. If you get a chance, he has an amazing way that he draws some incredible um, contemporary applications out of the book of Daniel. I mean, he's an incredible Bible teacher. He's a, he's a professor at Oxford University. He's a reader in pure mathematics, also has a Ph.D. in philosophy, and one of the most amazing Bible teachers I've ever heard. Um, uh, loves the Lord um, uh, from Ireland. All right. And this is the structure. Can you all read that? This is the structure he came up with in his studies and uh, along with, I believe it was Dr. David Gooding and him came up with this together. Um, and so you, and, what's, which, and the reason why I'm going over this to show you is that first of all, it helps us to get a good summary as to where we are in the book. Because when we dig down in the details, it's really nice to know where we are in the book. And, and what you've got is you've got overlapping structures going on here, which means this is on the level of genius writing. Okay, they're overlapping structures. So this the whole book has this overarching structure to it. You got a part A and a part B. And notice the correspondence. In part A, you've got the Babylonian court that starts in chapter one, and next week when we start chapter six, you're going to be in the Medo-Persian court. In part A, Daniel refuses to eat the king's food. In part B, Daniel refuses to obey the king's command. In part A, he's vindicated. He and his friends are vindicated. And ultimately, in part B, he's vindicated. As he starts his life in these new courts, he starts off in the Babylonian court, moves to the Medo-Persian court. And these courts are really, really important. Why? As we move into the next sections, you have two images in chapter 2 and 3, and you have two visions in chapter 7 and 8. And as we get into the, the, the chapter 2 and chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is about four kingdoms. The chapter 7, four beasts, is about four kingdoms. And as we're moving from the Babylonian court to the Medo-Persian court, we're seeing these, these prophesied kingdoms begin to happen. That's really important because Daniel is living out the fulfillment of God's promise that ultimately culminates in what kingdom? The kingdom of God. The fifth kingdom. The kingdom of God. And so we're seeing history move through the book. Well, if it was prophesied here and it actually happens in the book, what should we be thinking about the kingdom of God? It's going to happen. See, the structure of the book is set up to move us in this direction. And so you get, you get from the Nebuchadnezzar's dream image to him creating an image, which we went through. You get from the four beasts to the two beasts. And then that moves us into the center portion of the book uh, that correspond to uh, the ending part of each, uh, each part. You have two kings disciplined and you have two writings explained. Last week we talked about the discipline of Nebuchadnezzar and, and how Nebuchadnezzar comes to an end. And then Tonight, we're going to talk about the handwriting on the wall, the discipline, and the destruction of Belshazzar, and the, the ending of the kingdom of Babylon, this great head of gold coming to an end. Um, we're going to hit that tonight, and then when we get the correspond, the two writings that are explained in, um, uh, that, that um, come from the uh, uh, prophecies of Jeremiah, and then ultimately um, prophesying of the end. All right, so that's kind of the overall. I just, I like, you know, when you're, when you're building a puzzle, 
you have to do two things. You need to keep that big picture, and then you need to look at the details. So we just looked at the big picture. Now we're going to kind of go in and look at some of the details. Um, no, uh, chapter 1 was, was all about Nebuchadnezzar reverently placing. Now this is really important because it's going to come up tonight. We need to understand what happened in chapter 1 because it's going to be really relevant here in chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar goes and takes some of the vessels from the temple of God and carefully places them in the, in the houses of his gods in Babylon. Um, and God, God gave them to him. Remember that in chapter 1? God gave them to him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is only doing it because God allowed it. Um, and Daniel and the others refused to indulge in the impurities of the food. Y'all remember that? Where he's, and they end up becoming um, uh, uh, vindicated as a result of that. That's chapter 1. And the main theme we, we come out of chapter 1 was God's hand is providential in all events that happen. Which is huge. If you just went into exile and you're thinking, where's God? Wouldn't it be nice to know God's hand is providential in all events? And we get the whole span of the time of Israel in, chapter, in exile in chapter 1 in Babylon. And so we're left with several important questions we're going to consider as we go through the book. So I want you to run these questions through your head as we're studying tonight. Um, how is God at work? How is God going to win? Why does God allow himself to look bad? Um, how can we live in exile? What relationship is there between faith and culture? How, to what extent do we assimilate? All these questions we should be thinking about as we're going through this book. Um, then we moved into chapter 2. And it's, chapter 2 is important um, because we're switching from Hebrew into Aramaic. One of the few books in the Bible that, 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 that makes this made. In fact, it, it's, the, it's the only book that makes the shift this detailed. Ezra does it some as well, and there are other phrases and others. But Daniel switches from Hebrew in chapter 1 into Aramaic. And so while the Israelites are in exile, while he's writing about them in exile, from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 6, it's all in Aramaic, which is the language of the um, uh, uh, outside of Israel. And then when we get to chapter 7, it switches back to Hebrew as we get into the prophecies about what's going to happen after the Israelites return. So um, what's fascinating, I'm sorry, the switches between chapter 7 and chapter 8. I, I got that backwards. Um, so it's in a chiastic structure. All right, for uh, 43 points, what is a chiastic structure? That's right. The, well, not the plot, the theme. The theme, the lesson, the lesson that the writer is trying to teach you is in the middle. Okay, this is the way ancient writers would write. We write, where, where, where's, that, where's our theme usually hit us? What are they, we're trying to get to it. Yeah, like, well, that's the thesis. The thesis comes in the last sentence of the first paragraph when you're first taught to write. It's usually somewhere in the beginning. But your, your conclusion comes towards the end. That thing you're trying to put, hit to, you build up to it. You may have a little bit of build down afterwards, but your build up comes at the end. Not in ancient writing. Very often they use this chiastic structure, which, the, which, which they want to hit you right in the middle. And notice, this is the Aramaic. So notice the genius of the writing. So the whole book has a structure, and then we switch over to Aramaic. Now it has a structure. And as we get into each one of the stories, each one of them has a structure. This doesn't happen by accident. Somebody has to do some serious thinking to write this way. This is so cool. 
And so there are messages that are being communicated through these structures, through these big pictures. So what's going on in this chiasm? You got you got the the dream of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth, and and uh, corresponding to chapter seven, the vision of four kingdoms replaced by a fifth. In chapter three, you got Daniel facing death in the fiery furnace. I mean, the um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing fire death in the fiery furnace in chapter six daniel's going to face death in the lion's den and then you get to these two kings that are judged nebuchadnezzar and um uh, belshazzar and that's where we are right now we are in the thick of the theme of the aramaic section this point that one of the main points the author wants us to walk away from this book i believe the author's daniel i'm just going to say daniel daniel wants us to walk away from this book believing uh i mean understanding and knowing is going to come right in the thick of these two stories um and we'll see it expanded and blown up and everything all right so um chapter two was again it was all about um i'm not going to go through what we just did the the purpose of that great image in those four kingdoms who remembers what the image of the four kingdoms were it was a great colossal man but what were the different metals it was a head of gold. It was arms and chest of silver. Silver. It was a waist of bronze. Think Olympics, right? You know, this is right out of the Bible. The Olympics. Think Olympics, okay? And then finally, you know, gold, silver, and bronze. And then finally, the, 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 from the legs down and until you get to the feet, the feet were mixed. Well, what were the legs iron and then the the iron in the feet was mixed with clay okay so if you got any one of those give yourselves nine points each for them all right and uh, if you need some points you don't have any yet the people you can borrow them from somebody and then trade you can trade your points um so um yeah so this and then ultimately what happens to that image there's a yeah there's a rock that is not made by human hand that crushes it to dust and it is the kingdom that destroys the kingdoms of men right and so the purpose of this is that we know uh the god of heaven is literally the true source of wisdom and power and so the rest of these stories we're going to find god's wisdom or we're going to find god's power and in this story he learns of god's wisdom nebuchadnezzar learns of god's wisdom right and what's important about god and his wisdom and power he shares it Genesis chapter 1, we were created to be his imagers, to have dominion on earth, to reflect him, to carry out, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a royal priesthood, to carry both his authority and his wisdom onto earth. But here's the thing. Because he's shared it with us, he holds us accountable to it, right? And that's what we're learning in these two center stories. He's holding Nebuchadnezzar account to it. He's going to hold Belshazzar account to it. And that should tell us whenever we see worldly anybody in leadership anywhere wielding, supposedly wielding the wisdom and the power of God, God is going to hold them accountable for it. This is one of the themes. He will establish his kingdom for he is sovereign over all the kingdoms of humanity. All right. So that took, it takes us into chapter three and that's, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar standing up, and, and, and so he learned God's wisdom. Now he learns God's power. Nobody can deliver out of my hand until Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fire un, unscathed. Oh, and, uh, and the bottom line, the bottom line of that chapter that we took from that is from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was what? 
And, and this, look, if we understand God is the true source of wisdom, God is the true source of power. And in face of that, we're looking at the world acting um, uh, completely contrary to that. How should we act in the middle of that? How should we respond in the middle of that? Well, what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? No matter what, I'm not bowing down. Yeah, whether God delivers me or not, so be it. I'm not bowing down. Because I know who that rock is that's not made by human hands. In your kingdom, yeah, you may be ahead of gold, but guess what? That gold gets ground to dust. I'm not trusting in the head of gold or, the, or, or silver or bronze or even the power of iron because ultimately it's on a foundation of clay. I'm trusting in the rock made by human hands. And this is the theme that's carrying us forward as we're going to move into the story tonight. So what do we learn here? Faith is courageous. Faith is, it, to say you have faith means you have courage. It doesn't mean you believe a certain set of, of, of precepts and a certain set of standards. It means you're willing to stand up and declare who God is in his true wisdom and in his true power. It's not simply cognitive. It's not based on personal benefit. We worship him alone because he alone is worthy, period. We worship him alone because he alone is worthy. That's why we worship him. All right, so that took us into chapter 4, which was the glory of Babylon. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time on this, so I'm going to touch this just a little bit. But this kind of is going to lead into tonight's story. So I want us to just kind of to, to picture this. Babylon was literally the greatest empire on earth. It is the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven great wonders of the world. Look up, do a little bit of study on ancient Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian, and do a little study on it and just see the amazing glory of this empire. It was incredible. Okay, and um, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, was given a dream that because because um, he was seeing all of this glory and he was going to take credit for himself instead of giving God the credit for having given it to him. Well, he's already seen the hand of God. He's seen the hand of God in wisdom. He's seen the hand of God in power. And now he's going to take credit for himself, which means he's gone crazy. His mind is not thinking like the mind of a man. It's thinking like the mind of an animal. And for seven periods of time, he has the mind of an animal. Until he comes to his right senses and recognizes the sovereignty of God, in which case then he is restored to the mind of a man. This is the theme here. It's the heart of the chiasm. It's the heart of what's going on. God will judge Gentile kings for their pride. This is what's going on. This is my... so we're right here, and this is where we're going to be tonight. We're going to be doing the second part of this chiasm. Um, and here's my uh, kind of own personal synopsis of it. It is literally madness to deny the sovereignty of God over the nations. We're going to see madness in chapter 4. We saw it in chapter 4. We're going to see it in chapter 5 tonight. It is literally madness to deny the sovereign hand of God over the nations. Um, and this is what the story's telling us. And so we come to the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story. The point of the story, it's madness to die. God, um, his power, his grace, his glory, what he's given us, and to take credit for our own. It's this absolute madness to take credit on this for our own. The fool in his heart says there is no God. It's not just denying God's existence. It's literally denying everything God's given us. The fool in his heart. It's madness. All right. So, chapter 5, Belshazzar's judgment. Here we go. Oh, got your roller skates on? 
Bring it up. Big issue for tonight. We'll get there. I'm saving it. That's a commercial. Thank you. Great commercial. Going to leave you on the cliff for a little while. Mm. Hang out over the edge of the cliff. We will get there. Excellent question. All right. So as we get into this, this chapter here, again, we're still in the heart of the chiasm. This Aramaic section. This is we're to walk away understanding these lessons. God judges Gentile kings for their pride. Can I? How important is that to know today? When you look around the world and you see the destruction of so much that's going on in the world, is it not good to know that we get it backwards? Let me put it this way. Let me help, to, I hope at some level to change our perspective. And, and I want to I preface it by saying go read Psalm 2. If you read Psalm 2, it's literally making this point right here. And here's the point. The nations who choose to rebel against God and seek to throw off his, uh, uh, throw off his laws, throw off his ways, throw off the Messiah, throw off uh, who he is, the nations who choose to do that, God sits in the heavens and laughs in derision. Psalm 2, I'm quoting it. So what that should do in us is not fear for what those kings might do for us, but fear for what's going to happen to them if they don't repent. It changes the whole way we see the world. We don't walk in fear of what's going on around us. We live in in life knowing God will ultimately bring about his plan and he has put us here to participate with him in that in the same way he put daniel and shadrach and meshach and abednego and all these people into exile in order to reach these gentile kings and gentile people so that's a different way this is the we're, this is the point of these stories that we walk away not feeling oh my goodness the world's against us we are literally involved in Scripture as much as they were. When they're living this, they're not thinking, you know, this is a good story. Somebody should write this down. No, they're just living out their lives just like you and me. They're living out just like you and me. And you know what? We are still living Scripture. How do I know? Because it isn't finished yet. And it talks about what's going to happen when it's finished and all those who are going to participate in getting us there. That's us. That's us. Okay. So, we're in the heart of the chiasm here, this chiastic structure. And um, this story is literally a complement to Nebuchadnezzar's story. You've got Nebuchadnezzar's story, and now you're going to have Belshazzar's story. So, it's a court contest. Um, and I'll, the reason I keep pointing this out is this is ancient literature. And so, they're using motifs over and over and over again. You find in ancient literature. And this court contest, this particular type, you get a, 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 a member of a lower status who rises up to solve a problem at the high level, and he becomes the hero. And so this is the, this is the motif it uses. Think Joseph in Egypt. Same thing, court contest. Same motif that's used. Ancient writings use this motif over and over. Makes for great movies. Lots of movies use the same kind of plot, right? All right. Um, so it's, it's great story writing, even if it's, 
you know, it, uh, anyway, just leave it at that. So it's structured. How is this chapter structured? Remember, every, remember everything has a structure to it in ways that we look to kind of see how did the author organize the chapter so that we can better find the flow and the messages in what's trying to communicate. Well, this one is a series of speeches. Okay, so we're going to start off with this banquet. This is kind of the backdrop. There's this banquet which demonstrates the complete arrogance of Belshazzar, how far he has fallen. And then we get a series of speeches. We get a speech from the queen. We get a speech from Belshazzar. We get a speech from Daniel. And then it concludes. It concludes with the, that, that the, the kingdom of Babylon is over. It's done. It's done in. The head of gold has been toppled. We're going to now move to the arms and chest of silver. And that's how the story goes. Let's look at it. So I'm going to read the story now. You can open it up in your Bibles. Read along with me. Uh, you can watch, see it on the screen. Sometimes people like to read a little different translation as we go. pulls out different things. Um, but let's just go through the story. All right. So King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. Notice the repetition here. Remember, repetition is important. They drank wine and praised, what? The gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gold, silver, bronze, iron. Ring a bell there? The kingdoms of men? Ring a bell? Leading down. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Very important, that third ruler. Why third? Very important. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Notice she wasn't there. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit knowledge and an understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this daniel whom the king named belteshazzar now let daniel be called and he will show the interpretation 
Notice they're referring to him as Daniel here. Why would they refer to him as Daniel? I don't know. Daniel means what? God is my judge. Hmm. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king of my father brought from Judah. Notice he says my father here. Important. We'll see why. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom so notice we've had two speeches so far we've had the queen's speech now we've had the king's speech now we move to daniel then daniel answered and said before the king let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another nevertheless i will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation O king The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of that greatness, because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. He was the head of gold. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew... That the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over, and sets over it whom He will. And you, His son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you had lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and and whose all are your ways you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meni, meni, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meni, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 
So there you have it. In the end, uh, you had the third speech, Daniel's speech, and then finally the judgment. Uh, so we're going to talk about Belshazzar. Who is this character, Belshazzar, for a minute? What's his relationship? Do what? No, it was most li- we're going to get to that, but it's uh, most likely Aramaic. Um, it's in the Aramaic section, and so why would they not recognize the Aramaic? We'll talk about that. Um, so who is this King Belshazzar? Who is this character? Because this is all about him. Quite frankly, he was unknown in history until the 19th century. Now, this is hugely important because for, 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 for uh, decades, critical scholars says, well, this is clearly not a true story. Because we can't find any trace of Belshazzar in history. And so, you know, this Daniel is this guy, must have, must have written many years later, centuries later, and came up with this name and put him in here. And, got, you know, somehow got it wrong. Because he was never king of Babylon. He's not in any of the records anywhere. And critical scholars, and there's another place we're going to see in the text where critical scholars are saying that today. And they were wrong. In the 19th century, they actually discovered his name shows up in an archival document from the Neo-Babylon Empire. This is the Neo-Babylon Empire. Turns out he was there all along. Just because we don't know it doesn't mean it's not true. We're not the ones with omniscient knowledge. He was referred to as, now, um, in the text, over and over, he's referred to as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, right? But, in fact, he's not physically related and maybe not even by marriage. I'm getting to your question right here. Um, it's possible that the queen mother may have been a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. That is possible. Um, could, could possibly have been related that way. But um, uh, who, he was, who he was the son of was Nabonidus. Now we know from Babylonian history, Nabonidus was the king who ruled from 556 to 539 B.C. That's when Babylon fell, 539 B.C. Um, and Belshazzar ruled as a co-regent with Nabonidus. When? Well, there was a period for about 10 years that Nabonidus just up and left Babylon, and he was staying in a whole other place, a whole other city, and as he's living out there, he appointed Belshazzar as the regent of Babylon. And so he was, here's Belshazzar in Babylon proper, ruling from here, feeling his oats. Right? You know, thinking he's a great. Hence, he can't give anybody half his kingdom. What can he give? A third of the kingdom comes out in the story. Why a third? Because he's got somebody over him. He's number two. He can only make somebody number three. That's all he can do. The story tells us this. All right. So Nabonidus, by the way, he usurps the throne from Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, uh, Lavashi Marduk. Okay. So Nebuchadnezzar, when he passed, he reigned for a long time. I think it was 40-some years. When he dies, his son, evil Marduk, becomes king, and he reigns for a short period of time. And, uh, and then um, uh, I think there's some other kings in there. And then his grandson uh, takes over, Labashi Marduk, and he's only in there for a very short period of time between, before Nabonidus kills him. Now, um, so why then is Belshazzar called the son of Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, clearly, you know, he's not, not you know, this is several few generations away. How do we get son out of this? Now, this is kind of cool. So, again, this is another one of those pieces where people will come along and say, he wasn't his son. You see the mistake in the Bible? See, the Bible doesn't know what it's doing. There's another error in the Bible. We had no Belshazzar. And by the way, he wasn't a son of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, look at all these mistakes the Bible's making. Wrong. We don't understand because we don't understand the literature itself. 
But let's take a look at the literature. Let's take a literature in its context and see what we can find. What can we dig up? What can we discover? Number one, in the ancient Near East, guess what? Very often, kings and their successors were called father and son. This was something, this was how successors were referred to even several generations away from the kings that were before them. They were called because they were, it's what it did, it lent a sense of legitimacy to them being on the throne. So even if I wasn't blood related, I was still the son because I'm on the throne. They were called, it was regardless of however a person came to ascension. Now I'm going to show you an actual, another example of this from the ancient Near Eastern documents. Yes? Yes, like our forefathers. Yes. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, like the, you know, the fathers of the nation. We call them the fathers of the nation. We don't call them the great, 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 great grandfathers. And even even if I'm first generation in this country from another country, I still call them the fathers of the nation. They're my fathers of this nation. Yeah, that's a great analogy. All right. So there's a, a black obelisk um, that was put up by Shalmaneser III. He was an Assyrian king. And on it, we're going to see this in a minute. In fact, um, here it is. Um, on it is, um, uh, th- that's the obelisk right there. That's the big picture. Um, uh, Shalmaneser III put this up. He's a, he was an Assyrian king. And the Assyrian king, he's, he's, he's bragging about um, all his accomplishments. And one of those accomplishments was King Jehu of the northern tribe of Israel coming and bowing down before him. Here it is up close. There, there you can see it up close, a picture of it up close. Um, and uh, on, the, on the obelisk, catch this. This is what it says on the obelisk. It says, it says, it depicts Jehu, son of Omri. Jehu, son of Omri. Now, anybody here who knows uh, their, their, their Old Testament, knows the book of Kings, know, will, will right away recognize something. And if you don't, I, I, I recommend go check out Second Kings 9 and 10. Jehu was not only not of the bloodline, he was appointed by God to go and kill off Omni, Omni's um, uh, descendants. He was the appointed destroyer of, uh, of Omri on his bloodline. It was um, um, Omri and his sons. By the time Jehu gets down there, he's a few descendants away. And yet he's what? Called his son. Why? Because that's what you do. You're on the throne. The kings before you were your fathers. And so we're looking at another example of this right here in the Bible um, from outside sources of Bibli- uh, during this period of time. So when someone says, oh, you read the book of Daniel, it can't be right. Belshazzar wasn't his son. We all know that. It's because you're reading it with the wrong glasses. You're not looking at it as the literature in its period of time in which it is. Now, why might this be a theme that comes up over and over in the story? How many times? I mean, I didn't count them, but it's probably a half a dozen times. Your father. And even Belshazzar himself says, my father, Nebuchadnezzar. By saying Nebuchadnezzar, my father, number one, I'm going to give a little bit of the punchline ahead of time. By saying it, number one, it demonstrates what? He's trying to prove he's greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king of Babylon. His arrogance is to demonstrate he was greater than him. Number one, it gives legitimacy. Because why does he want legitimacy? Because he's just a co-regent. 
And so he's acting in nothing but, but pride, arrogant pride, and, and despising what had come before him. Um, so the literary purpose to show this relationship is to also show this. Belshazzar is not ignorant of what he's doing. He knows full well what he's doing. And that's what the story's saying. You knew what happened in Nebuchadnezzar when he demonstrated pride. What you're doing, you're doing knowing full well that that occurred. And that's why the story's using this relationship so many times. It shows how egregious it is his error. All right. So let's move into this, this banquet in the vessels. What's going on here? So just to, this, it's, it's widely attested. Great feasts like this are widely attested in the ancient world. Why this feast? I mean, we, we don't know why this feast. It could be um, they, were, you know, they were celebrating the last night of the empire. It could be that you know, this time of year was in October um, 539 B.C., which would have been near the, the time of the moon god Sin, or Seen, actually. Um, uh, that was a slip, wasn't it, calling it Sin? But... Um, uh, it could have been that it was, a, it, was a, it was a festival for him. You know, we don't really know. It doesn't know. And, and here's my point. Why am I bringing that up? Because if the detail's not in the story, they, they left it out on purpose. It's not something we need to know. It's nice to know. We, we are the kind of thing, people that, you know, want to dig and kind of find that stuff, right? And, but it, it doesn't, it's not germane to, to what is germane is to know it was a feast and that's what's going on. And so, therefore, there was a lot of drinking going on. Now, what was the curse that happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4? Chapter 4, what was cursed? What happened to him? He went crazy. He lost his mind. He had the mind of an animal. What happens when you drink too much? Hmm. Notice the setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Has one ever heard of what might happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you lose your mind. You're not in your right mind. Okay? This is an important background, though, that they're drinking. That's also important because it tells you why they want these vessels. And so they're drinking, they're not in their right mind, and they decide to pull out Yahweh's vessels. Now, Yahweh's vessels, these were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple in Jerusalem. And we learned about this in Daniel 1, right, when God gave the kingdom into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now, these vessels represented some things. These vessels represent absolute value. They represent the God of heaven. These were the last tangible physical connection that the exiles had to the temple that was destroyed. These were, the, these were symbols of hope and restoration. The fact that they existed was, was symbols of hope and restoration that that temple might one day be restored as God promised. God would someday do this. These things represent um, uh, eternal um, values. Now, why is that important? Because Belshazzar is going to be judged. He's going to be evaluated. So he's taking that which is eternal value, and he's doing what with it? He's worshiping which is gold, silver, bronze, stone, iron, wood, dead things. He's using that which is eternal to worship that which is uh, um, uh, passing away. He's literally committing blatant sacrilege. Um, 
Now, if you're in the ancient world and you're reading this story, what you're going to realize is the level of gall that it would have taken uh, Belshazzar to do that. Why? Because even in the kingdom of Babylon, those vessels were where? Those were, those were housed in the temple of the gods of Babylon. So he was not only despising Yahweh, he was despising his own gods, which is demonstrating the level of arrogance he's showing here. He's completely lost his mind. Um, the, the, uh, uh, if nothing else, he should have feared his own gods. So he's clearly drunk. He's not in his right mind. And he's ultimately showing disregard and arrogant contempt over his father, Nebuchadnezzar, who put these vessels in a place of honor. Notice, everything Nebuchadnezzar honored, Belshazzar is denigrating. Nebuchadnezzar honored Yahweh? I'm going to use them for my party. I'm going to get drunk off of them. I'm going to give a punchline ahead of time. Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel? He's the only one I'm not going to ask to help me, even when I need help. When he finally does come, we're going to find out he insults him. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel. Even after he's been judged, he's still acting in arrogance. He's still trying to see himself greater. So let's, that moves us right into the handwriting on the wall. So, I mean, I want you to think for a minute. Right now, we're standing here and literally a disembodied hand. Anybody remember a show called The Adams Family? <laughs> Remember Thing? <laughs> uh, which, by the way, I found out like years later that that was the guy who played Lurch. It was his hand. So anyway, that's, I don't know if that was true or not. That's a rumor I heard. So um, that's not worth anything. That's not even worth a point. So, But um, I want you to picture right now a hand, literally, a disembodied hand literally appearing out of anywhere and going over to the wall and just start writing on the wall. Okay. So the way that the language is written in the Hebrew is, is Belshazzar comes undone. It's, it's very smoothed over in the English. It's liable he literally lost control of his bodily functions. Okay? And so somebody reading this from the outside, especially if you're an Israelite reading this, I mean, this is almost like um, uh, uh, it, it, it's ironic humor. It's ironic humor because here's this proud, arrogant king who, who fears not anyone or anyone who's now over here. The moment Yahweh just shows up a little bit, he literally can't even control his bowels. Okay, this is the picture that's going on in the story. This is the way the story is coming out. It's portraying the king, um, the arrogance, raising his fist at God. And for God, you know, God comes along and says, that, that's, a, that's a challenge. Psalm 2. God sits on his throne and laughs in derision. Psalm 2. All right. So this writing was un- unreadable or it was indecipherable to the king and his counselors. Why? Why couldn't they read it? So it was either unreadable, they couldn't read it, or they couldn't decipher it. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why. It could have been a code. It could have been abbreviations. It could have been a peculiar script, the way the script was put together. Likely, likely, it was unpointed Aramaic. Now, um, anybody that knows ancient languages, like ancient Hebrew, didn't have vowels. They just took all the letters, the consonants, and put them, run them all together. And you just had to read it and kind of know what it said and figure it out as you went. 
And it wasn't until centuries and centuries later that the vowel system began to be developed in Hebrew. And Aramaic was similar. Old Aramaic was unpointed. It didn't have vowels. And so it's possible um, they, they could have been somehow unspaced or made vertical. And I'm going to show you some pictures. This is English right here, okay? Here's a little example, all right? Somebody read that for me. John rode the bike. John read the book. How about Jane? Jane rode the bike. Yeah, see, we got three. We got four possibilities right there. Right? And see, the second one down, if they're all together, that even gets a little bit harder. Where's the, where's the dividing lines? Now, now, if we took and made them vertical, J-N-R-D-T-H-B-K, that makes it even harder. So there's ways in which these letters, even if they could read Aramaic, there's ways the hand could have put them on the wall that they, that they wouldn't have, oh, I don't know what, you know, beats me, you know, I don't know what's going on here. Um, and Daniel comes right in because Daniel is not just discerning, not, not just reading Aramaic, he's discerning what the Spirit, God gives him the key. It's like anybody ever like hear a riddle and all of a sudden it just hits you? And then, but once you know, once you, when, there's a lot of riddles when you hear them, you're like, I got no idea. But once you hear the answer, you can't not hear it. You know, every time you hear that riddle, oh, I know the answer, I know the answer. Daniel had that answer. Daniel had the key. It wasn't a riddle to him. All right? So it's not a sentence. It's just three words. So for whatever the reason, it's literally clear that, and, and here's the point. So why is it indecipherable? Because it's supposed to be Daniel as the one who reads it. Daniel where? The retired man, the forgotten one, the one looked down on. You know, the one that Nebuchadnezzar had raised up, the one God had demonstrated? Yeah, that one. He's the one that's supposed to be reading it. This contrast is coming up. All right, so now we move to the Queen's speech and Belshazzar's speech. We get these two speeches, right? Um, so... Now, we read this, we read it several times, um, that the king's wives are already at the banquet, right? And I kind of pointed this out as we're reading the story. So it's likely this is not one of the king's wives. It's most likely the, his mother, right? The queen mother. We, we know his father's still alive. You know, he's in another place. Doesn't mean his mother's there. This is probably the queen mother. And, and in ancient Near Eastern stories, the queen mothers play important roles. Notice she displays some level of authority over Belshazzar, which she would if she were the queen mother. It's like, you know, yeah, you may be the king, but I gave birth to you. You know, that kind of thing. And, and as the queen, she would have had a certain level of authority in, in the nation. Her, and her husband, who was the king over him. So there is this... Um, there's this level of authority that, come, that she comes out with in the story. And so she's an important character. She's a very important character here. Now, there's this thing called tone. In other words, when they're speaking, what's the tone? Are they angry? Are they happy? What are they? Well, unfortunately, it's very difficult to tell the tone from both the Queen Mother and Belshazzar from the grammar, from the language. Scholars are literally all over the place on what the tones are. Um, some say the queen mother's being compassionate. Some say she's being an irritated mother. Some say she's being gracious and courteous. Some say she's being condescending. Same with Belshazzar. Some say he's being skeptical. Some say he's being challenging. Some say he's being desperate, being resentful, friendly and welcoming. We, it's hard to tell. Now, you'll kind of, as we go through it, you'll kind of see where I, I land as I'm going through it. I think she's, she's being a mother. Dude, you should have known this. You should have known this. 
How could you not know this? But there, um, but there, there, there's a, there is a sense of coming into the room. I know you have a problem. You can't solve it. I'm here to help you solve your problem. You left somebody out. You know, this, this guy you left out, uh, hello, wake up. She at some level is trying to wake him up to his own error. Um, and she describes Daniel to Belshazzar. But she does it in such a way that the reader wonders, how does Belshazzar not already know about him? Okay, you know, as she's talking about him, you know, at your father Nebuchadnezzar, he was the man that he picked up, he was to put up. And, and, and the reason why she's doing it is the story wants to show you just how arrogant he is. It's like, you know, okay, anybody here have a mother? Anybody's mother ever said to you, you know this, you should have known. Anybody here ever, any, any mothers ever give a lecture? Anybody hear a lecture from a mother? This is what's going on here. She's telling him. You have, and she's, in, in so doing, she's pointing out how egregious is his error. Daniel was somehow, why isn't he out there? You know, he was, he was the, the ruler right under Nebuchadnezzar, right? So he's either demoted or he's retired. Or quite frankly, the king was literally willfully ignorant. In other words, chose not to acknowledge him, just um, he may have been in a position, he just chose not to acknowledge it. Um, so, uh, now now we're going to move to Belshazzar's speech. His speech um, demonstrates just how represent, reprehensible of a character he has. Um, because notice, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, if you go back and you check out the Queen's speech, everything she says about Daniel is about Nebuchadnezzar promoted him. He was all over all the enchanters. He was over all the, the Chaldeans. He had the spirit of the gods and everything. He had all wisdom. He could bring to light. He had all knowledge. She does all this buildup about who Daniel is. Now we're going to take a look at, Nebuch- at how the first thing Belshazzar says about him, the very first thing, and it demonstrates right away just how reprehensible Belshazzar is. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Go back and read the queen's speech. She never once mentions that he was an exile. I thought you didn't know who Daniel was. I thought you forgot about this guy. Yet the very first thing you say is a way to put him down and put him in a place. Oh, you're a foreign exile. What are you even doing here? You were, you were, you were, you were, you were, uh, you were somebody my, uh, my, my, my father, the king, conquered and brought in this land to be one of his slaves. How does Belshazzar know this? The queen didn't say that. The queen didn't say anything about that. So Belshazzar is, is, is both claiming not to know Daniel, yet know he is one of the exiles. Plausibly, he knows more than he's saying. Plausibly, it was a clear choice not to call on Daniel, period. It's demonstrating right away how... How arrogant he is. You see, we are not to feel sorry for him at the end of the chapter when God says, I'm done with you. So Belshazzar is, is, is both claiming not to know Daniel, and yet he is one of the exiles. Oh, I just did that. Uh, I had the slide in there twice. By degrading Daniel as one of the exiles, he continues his prideful contempt and disregard for Nebuchadnezzar and what Nebuchadnezzar had highly guarded, as well as Yahweh. So now we move to Daniel's speech. 
Now, Daniel's speech might remind us a little bit of his speech in the, in the very first time he talks to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because you remember, Daniel goes and he fasts and prays and he gets the revelation to the dream. But he doesn't just start right off by telling the, you know, what, what everybody wants to know. What's the dream mean? What's the dream mean? You know it? What's the dream? He doesn't do that. He starts off with this lecture first, this pre-lecture. Well, he does the same thing here. He doesn't come in and say, he says, yeah, I can read the writing. But before I do, I got a few things I need to let you know. And so we're following this pattern uh, uh, that goes all the way back to chapter 2. And it's a history lesson, but it's also an indictment. So he starts with this history lesson. And by starting with the history lesson, you call him your father. You should have known this, saying that, what, that he full well knows this. And as a result, it's his own judgment. So when he gets to the judgment, he doesn't have to explain why he's being judged. He's just demonstrated it. Does everybody follow that? All right, so Nebuchadnezzar did not acknowledge the rightful source of his greatness, the God of Israel. Wait, wait a minute, that I'm doing this? Yeah, um, so when we, when, if you go back, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't acknowledge the, the rightful source of his greatness, the God of Israel. So God took it all away until he did, right? Hang on one second. Hold on one second. Okay, here we go, yeah. So the first thing he's saying to him, look, Nebuchadnezzar didn't acknowledge, you knew this. God took it all away. You knew this. You knew all about it, and you failed to learn from this lesson. He tells him that straight up. Daniel describes the king's pride in a similar manner that, the, that other prophets. Daniel is being very prophetic here. He's describing this like other prophets describe the failure of kings. And here's, I'm going to give you an example of this in Isaiah. How... How are you? Uh, how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed like with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have been destroyed because you have destroyed your land you have slain your people may the offspring of evildoers never be named and so the whole point is you see how the prophet is is indicting the leaders daniel's following the same pattern he's doing the same thing it's a shorter version but he's doing the same thing and he's also doing something else He's giving us a little hint about what's going to come up in the prophecies when we get to Daniel 7 through 12. There's going to be the foreshadowing of the vision, this little horn, and the king. And what we're going to find out, they're presumptuous, they're arrogant, they're blasphemous, they're shaking their fist at the God of heaven. And we're going, where did we see that before? Belshazzar did that. What happened to him? 
So it's, it's, it should be giving us this picture. By knowing what happens to Belshazzar here, we know ultimately what happens to the little horn. We know what happens to all the little horns, those who exalt themselves. It's this pattern that follows. All right. So the next thing he does is he contrasts Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. There's this contrast between the two. Now, now in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant, right? He's like, look at this great kingdom I had. But, but he has a, there's a certain human accomplishment connected with his pride. Is his pride wrong? Yes. Did it need to be corrected? Yes. Was it arrogant? Yes. But he had, he, he had these accomplishments that he wrongly associated with God. Belshazzar has no accomplishments. Belshazzar is, is the stand-in son of a usurper who made no mark on human history except his own arrogance in this book. He's done literally nothing to do anything to benefit anyone and yet sees himself as all that and some more. This is what it's trying to demonstrate here. The level that we can fall to in human pride and arrogance. So, takes us to the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. What does it say? And it's very short. Um, really, it's very simple. Notice what did he do? He took absolute things and he used them, uh, uh, he devalued them. He took the vessels of God, what was pure, what was holy, and he devalued them. So God says, okay, my turn to evaluate you. And when he did, he found them lacking. And as a result, he was judged. It was almost immediate. He weighed him in the scales. You're exalting yourself. You're all that. You're greater than Nebuchadnezzar. You're greater than the, than the holiness of God. Okay, well, let's, let's measure you up. You see, let me tell you, I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's not a whole lot there, right? And we, think, and we say, how can, you know, what does this really apply to us? I mean, we, we don't have that kind of arrogance, do we? The problem that we miss is because the way we evaluate, we evaluate according to one another. Right? What do we do? We judge by our intentions and others by their actions. We judge others by their actions. What you did that? Yeah, but I didn't mean. Um, and the biggest thing we miss, the, the biggest thing we miss is how absolutely in rebellion we are to the God of heaven. There's a phenomenon that's, um, if you, you know, if you kind of pay attention to things going on in the Christian world, you'll see, you know, you've seen, I've seen over the last, I don't know, 10 years, uh, what's called, several Christians was going through what's called a deconstruction of their faith. Anybody heard that before? A deconstruction of their faith where um, they just come to a point, well, I don't believe anymore. They, they walk away. And um, I'm not saying this is the case for every single one of them, um, but Sean McDowell, the son of John McDowell, um, has an incredible ministry, an apologetic ministry. He's a professor at Biola University. It's a great YouTube channel. And he sat down and he's, um, he has um, interviewed a lot of these individuals who have walked away. And, um, and he asked them about how their faith began to begin with. Where did it come from? What was it based on? Why, you know, why would, you know, before the... 
And he said so often he, he found in these whose faith is deconstructed is that they, you know, maybe they were youth or maybe they, um, you know, had uh, were at a church service or something where they had some kind of a experience, maybe even a deeply profound experience where God touched them. And they began this walk of faith based on this experience that they had. And then he began to question them a little more. And, and he said, yeah, but what about recognizing? Do you ever come to the place of recognizing that you're in complete rebellion to the God of heaven and you need a savior? Do you ever come to that level? And he said, interestingly, in so many cases, that was never the case. They were never following Jesus because they needed a savior. We're following him because of some benefit they got out of an experience. Now, look, I'm not saying that, that people can't come truly have an experience. I hope we do have experiences with God. It's not separate from our faith. But my point is, is this, that when it's all said and done, and I'm in exile in a foreign land, and, and, and I've got nothing else, and I, and I decide, look, this is hard, this is difficult, where am I going to go? If I'm turning away from God, I'm turning to something else. Exactly what is that? Because there is no one else who can grant me forgiveness. There's an evangelist. His name is Ray Comfort. He does an amazing job. I just watched one of his videos today. And this um, was a Jewish professor. He was on this campus, college campus. Jewish professor actually watched one of Ray Comfort's videos bringing, uh, uh, talking to another professor on this campus. And the guy um, actually prayed and, and, and said, I hope I, I meet him one day. Sure enough, he shows up on campus, and Ray Comfort shows up. And uh, he says, I really wanted to meet you. He says, you did. He goes, yeah. He says, why? He says, I fear for my soul. He says, why do you fear for your soul? One of the things Ray Comfort will do, he says, if you'll talk to me and you'll let me, I just want to ask you a few questions. Have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I've heard of them. He, said, he says, if you, if you were to stop and you were to be judged by a holy God today, how would you measure up? How would you measure up? How would you stand? Oh, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I've had people tell me this. I'm a good person. I actually had one person tell me, I'm a good person. If God can't accept it, that's his problem. Father, oh. <laughs> forgive her because she does not what she's doing. She doesn't. That's why Jesus said it. That's why Stephen said it. Um, he goes, okay, he says, I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Can I ask you a few questions? It might get a little personal. Is that all right? Yeah, he says, look, I'm not asking this to judge you. I'm not asking this to make you feel bad. But I am asking you uh, so that you can, be, you can judge rightly. I know the truth and understand the truth. He says, the Ten Commandments say this. Say, thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Yeah. What do you call somebody who tells a lie? A liar. Hmm. God's Word says you shouldn't cheat. Have you ever cheated? Yeah, I mean, everybody's cheated. What do you call somebody who cheats? Cheater. Hmm. So the word of God says you shouldn't steal. Have you ever stolen anything? I mean, even something small, like, you know, even, you know, an eraser or something, taking something that didn't belong to you, whatever. Have you ever stolen something? Yeah. Well, what do you call people who steal things? Thief. So I'm going to get just a little bit more personal here. And once again, I'm not trying to judge you, and, and, and I'm just trying to, to help you see the, the reality of, of your situation before God. He says, this Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And Jesus says, if you lust after someone in your own heart, you've committed adultery. Have you ever looked at someone 
with desire, with lust. Have you ever done that in your life? Probably. You have? What would you call that? An adultery? Well, have you ever used God's name in a way that's a curse word? Have you ever cursed using God's name? Yeah. So that's called blasphemy. He says, well, he says, do you love your mother? Yeah, I love your mother. Would you ever use your mother's name as a curse word? No. Well, why would you use the God who created you and loves you if his name is a curse word? So you've literally just stood here before me and, and admitted you're a lying, thieving, stealing, cheating, adultering blasphemer. What do you think is going to happen before you when you stand before a living God? When he weighs that? How are you going to weigh? So we look at Belshazzar here. Very simple. God's weighing you. We're all going to get weighed. It says we all stand before the, the, the judgment seat of Christ. Paul writes that. He found you lacking. Every one of us lacks. There is not one good, it says. No, not one. And judging as a result, almost immediately. Now Nebuchadnezzar found a place of repentance. But Belshazzar didn't. Even through all of this, continued to demonstrate his arrogance. I would submit to you, if you're listening tonight and you've never uh, gone through this process of repenting, that's what we're offered. We're offered repentance. Repentance simply means returning to God. It means returning to him. It means coming back to him for the forgiveness that he desires to give you. It's something we embrace by faith. It's kind of like jumping out of an airplane, right? You jump out of an airplane. What do you want when you jump out of an airplane? A parachute. That's right. That opens. <laughs> A parachute that opens. Okay? That's, God has provided the parachute and it will open. We're all jumping out of the airplane. The only question is whether or not we have the parachute he's given us. That parachute is Jesus. So there's a place for us to come. It's not a prayer you pray. It's an attitude of your heart that surrenders. It demonstrates. Now, in the story here, Belshazzar is not offered repentance. The judgment's final. The fact is, there is final judgment coming. It came in the flood. It's going to come again. It says God doesn't say God is uh, um, tolerant. It says God is long-suffering. He doesn't desire that any should perish. He desires that all repent. But yet there will be a time when he judges. So the story. So we have to ask a question. Nebuchadnezzar had both an opportunity to repent and a second chance. Why does Nebuchadnezzar get an opportunity to repent and a second chance, but Belshazzar doesn't? Why does the story do this? This is the heart of the chiasm. Both of them are judged. Both of them are arrogant. We're all arrogant. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One is given the chance of repentance. One is given a second chance and finds his way through. The other is judged. Why? Psalm 18.25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. With the crooked... You make yourself seem tortuous. God meets us where we are. God meets us where we are. Nebuchadnezzar ultimately responded to God's mercy and received it. God knew Belshazzar wasn't. Psalm eighteen twenty seven For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. 
The fact of the matter is God is willing to teach people about himself. He does this often and he does it repeatedly. He seeks to do it through us. He, he is over and over and over uh, teaching people about himself and repeating about himself. Check this out in 1 Timothy 2. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? That's the heart of God. His desire is that all people are saved and come to knowledge of him. Here it is in Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is the heart of God. That is the desire of God. Uh, Mercy triumphs over judgment, it says in the book of James, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Nonetheless, God doesn't force people to learn. He doesn't force us to. He's an officer and a gentleman. At some point, he may even keep us from learning. What? Check out Second Timothy 3. Why? Why would he do that? Because some people are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Now, how much more culpable are you if you keep hearing and keep hearing and keep hearing and still harden your heart? You're far more culpable here than you were here. It's actually in God's mercy he can cause you to be judged early. You have less culpability. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hebrews 10.26. So what's our job? Our job is to speak the truth, to offer the words of life, and to leave the results to God. We don't know. We don't know. There's a lot more to that, but I'm going to, that's the point for tonight. We are to play the role of Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel before Belshazzar. And so we come to the end of the chapter, and Babylon falls. There's an immediate change in the kingdom. It goes from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're introduced to this character called Darius the Mede. Um, And I'm going to save Darius the Mede for next week, because we're already over for tonight. Um, and that'll be a good segue to start into chapter, the next chapter. We've come to the end of Babylon. What, what have we come to? We come to the end of um, the head of gold. The head of gold has fallen. God gave them the position of the head of gold. And in their arrogance, they've lost it. But that is not just something for us to look at them and go, oh, how bad. That's the whole point. That's the garden. We were granted the head of gold. In the Garden of Eden, that ability to be an imager of God and to dwell on this earth. And we're held accountable to that. We're held accountable to that. But next, we'll be dealing with the kingdom of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, the kingdom of silver. Now, I'm going to say this one more time. I said in the beginning, we're going to close with this. There's something really cool about this. The fact that in the beginning of the book, chapter 2, Daniel doesn't know... Uh, all he knows, remember, he lived this, right? He's in exile in a foreign land. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about these kingdoms of the world and how history is going to play out until ultimately the kingdom of God takes over, okay? That's all he knows. Guys, I want, I want you to picture, like, you just had a dream, and God showed you all the kingdoms of the world that are going to happen, and, and, and Babylon is not yet the head of gold. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar just starting his reign. He hasn't yet come to the extent of being this great, powerful ruler. And so Daniel lives out in his life seeing that 
part of the dream come fully to fruition in his own lifetime. And then he sees the next kingdom come in, and we're going to see him actually serve in that court as well. What we're seeing is history lived out in front of us, these prophecies coming to pass in front of us, so we might know for a fact Jesus' kingdom is going to reign over the kingdoms of men. It's already happening. It's already happening. These aren't just stories in the book. It's a history of what has happened to play out what was prophesied so that we might live with the faith of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We might live with that courageous faith, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our situation is, so that we might not become arrogant, but we might bow our hearts. We might recognize our arrogance and our need, our rebellion, in need of that Savior. Amen? Father, we bless you. We thank you for revealing to us your word and opening your word to us. I pray that it would be combined with the power of your spirit and it would touch our hearts, cause us to hunger and to thirst for you, cause us to humble ourselves before you, cause us to be moved to the point of seeing how in need of a Messiah we are. And how gracious and good you are to offer that forgiveness to us, that chance for repentance, that second chance. Lord, may it not be about what we heard and hear, about the knowledge we gained in our mind, but about the spirit that we carry out the door with us, about the truth that changes and, and, and transforms us. And about the lives we touch because you've touched us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, so let me know when the recording's turned off. And so we can, if there's any questions in here, we've got a couple of minutes. We can do um, just a couple of Q&A, and then we'll, we'll need to close out.